listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Bill Tapp wanted to be the next cattle king of Australia, and for a time, he was. In this episode, Tony Tapp Coots shares the story of a man who was a pioneer, a visionary, and a dreamer. A man who turned Kalani Station from a bare block to one of several thriving cattle properties. But as his empire grew, so did Bill's battle with alcoholism. While the empire he worked so hard to build would eventually crumble, his legacy remained strong. The first time I met Bill Tapp, I was five years old and he was standing in the doorway of my grandmother's house in Catherine. My grandmother's house was an old tin shed. My two young uncles worked for Bill Tapp out on Kalani Station and they had all come into town for getting stores and things, I think. I was in Catherine at my grandmother's house because my mother had left my father in Alice Springs with her three young children and I was the eldest at five. And that's when I first met Bill Tapp. He was tall, slim. He wore white cream moleskin trousers and a blue R.M. Williams type shirt, dark blue royal shirt, and he had a great big belt around his hips and off that belt hung a Luger revolver and he had a, I think they're called bandoliers that, that hold the bullets and around the back of, of the belt was about these little things that, with the bullets in it. So I was pretty spellbound. <laughs> did you think someone had just walked out of a John Wayne movie? I did. <laughs> and Bill Tapp would go on to become your stepfather and a really important person in your life. But back then, you didn't know that. That was the first time you met him. So obviously, he really made a first impression. Yeah. And he had on the big 10-gallon hat too and a big black moustache as well. So he was a very imposing character. He was also, as I came to know him, he was very shy and didn't talk a lot. And you could sense that in him, I think. I maybe sensed that from very young, that sort of person that he was. So, yeah, he came to stay at my grandmother's house and my mother and we three kids were there. My mother was only 25. He stayed a few days because that's where they used to stay when they came into town. And he told mum's younger brother that he was going to marry her. It sounds like she made quite a first impression as well then. <laughs> yeah. So I guess back in those days, if he was based out on Kalani and your family was in town, what was the courtship like? It wouldn't have been very regular visits in those days. So I don't know. I think mum said they fell in love very quickly or, as she says, in lust. 
And before we knew it, within about, I think, eight months or so of coming back up to Catherine, we had moved out to Kalani with him. Bill is one of the most iconic characters of the Territory. Back then, is that who he was? Or was it later on in the game that he became well-known and a, a bit of a Territory legend? Yeah, probably later in the game. He came to the Northern Territory in 1947 at the age of 17 from Sydney. He was an only child. His mother was uh, wealthy. He grew up in Vaucluse and went to the Scots College in Bellevue Hill. Uh, He was well educated. He was, from his school reports, whenever he had a few drinks, he used to remind us of how good his school reports were and how bad ours were. (laughs) He was an excellent sportsman. He played you know, cricket and football, and he did boxing and rowing and all those sorts of things, played tennis, as most of the young guys did back then. Very good sportsman uh, and, and a city boy, but how he come to love the bush is he went on school holidays with friends from boarding school out to their properties in New South Wales, and he really fell in love with uh, just cattle and horses and that whole lifestyle. And when he was in year 11 or 12 and his mother was overseas, he wrote her a letter saying that when he finished school, he wanted to go to the Northern Territory and be the cattle king after he'd read the book written by Ian Idris. And as it turned out, his mother was quite a socialite. She knew Mr. Tonerman, spelt T-H-O-N-N-M-A-N, I think, uh, who owned Elsie Station at the time. And so she got him a job on Elsie Station as a jackaroo. So he came to the Northern Territory at, yeah, 17 in 1947. All the things that you know about Bill Tapp before, you know, mm. he came into your life, was it easy to get that out of him? I know you said he was quite shy and reserved. Was it hard to get this information from him? Uh, yeah, he was typical of the men of that time where he didn't talk about himself much. Um, but over, over the years, you just learnt all these different stories. His father had died, I think, in that last year that he was at school and an only child. And then his mother died when I was about 14, I think. So you sort of didn't have that learning from his parents either talking about him as a child. But over time, yeah, you, you just get these stories. And because in the bush, everyone's a storyteller in many ways, and particularly the, the stockmen and the Aboriginal people, because a lot of people weren't literate. So everything was storytelling, whether it be music with Slim Dusty, he was a storyteller um, of in, in music. The, the drovers and the stockmen all talked about, you know, when I was driving up the Murrunjai track or when I rode this horse and I was the only one that ever rode him and, you know, all these wild stories. But in amongst that, you'd some gentler stories or family stories would come out. What were Bill's favourite stories to tell you? Oh, his favourite stories were to tell us how tough he was and how... <laughs> how tough it was in the bush and, you know, they went without water for three days and those sorts of things. I particularly remember the Murrinjai, him talking about the Murrinjai track and them coming up from Elliot. So what happened after he went to Elsie Station 
Bill and Violet Croson were the managers of Elsie at the time. And then when they left, I think he was there maybe three or four years, they left and he went with them and they started up a um, droving team of their own and they were based in Elliot. So they were droving cattle up and down, I, I think, to the Queensland border and then bringing cattle back into the Territory. So he's quite young and it was a pretty darn tough life for a boy from Vaucluse in Sydney, but he just adjusted to it immediately. And then during that time, they went over to manage Rosewood Station on the Western Australian border and they were there for a couple of years and then three properties were excised off Victoria Vidown Station and that was Campfield Station, Montagini Station and Kalani Station. They put in as a partnership into the draw because that's, that, they, that's how they did it. You had to have a, sort of a submission to say you had enough money to um, start out on a cattle station. So the Bill Croson and Bill Tapp drew Montagini Station and they went out there and started it. There was nothing there and built yards and houses and paddocks and things. The partnership went on for a couple of years and started to break down. And the Izod's owned Kalani Station next door, and Bill Tapp bought that off them in 1960 for £90,000. All that was on there was an old bow shed to live under and a couple of paddocks and a, not even a set of cattle yards. How old would he have been when he bought Kalani? Well, he was born in 1925 and Kalani 1960, so what's that? 35. Gosh, that's impressive. He was very young, yeah. He he was 35. So from leaving home at 17, he had bought half shares in Montagini and worked there for the five or six years at least before buying Kalani. So that's also still a good 17, 18 years that he's gone out working, doing all the different jobs before he's managed to get to the point of ownership. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought of it like that's that. That's a fair amount of miles he's put in because I, I mm. guess I earlier on when you said that his mother was quite wealthy, I was I thought, oh, maybe maybe mum bought him a cattle station, but no, mm. like he's and if and even if she had, it, it certainly didn't get it, you know, handed to him. You, that's a good. No, year. I think she probably. I th- I'm pretty sure she sort of went guarantor and gave him a bit of a deposit. But, I mean, he's shown 17 years of commitment to the industry and to the type of work. It's not like he was going to buy it and then first wet season go, oh, this is too hard, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you, you couldn't blame anyone Can for, I have a refund? <laughs> I know. Well, these days it's hard enough and we're here in the mm. air con, uh, let alone, yeah, so he had just a bow shed. Can you explain what that is? What is a, a bow shed? How does it differ to a normal shed? A bow shed is um, for posts in the ground and then some posts across the top beams as beams and covered in big branches off trees. That is a bow shed. Would you put, is it just branches or would you put like leaves or grasses or anything in there too? Oh, yeah, leaves. You know, we'd, we'd go down to the creek and um, get the, the young eucalypts, the real bushy ones, and chop them all off, pile them up on the vehicle and then throw them onto the top every year. Um, you had to redo them. So that first few years, that's virtually uh, what we lived under. That was the kitchen and the dining room and the everything sort of under the bow shed in the shade. Um, the, the few Aboriginal people lived in 
humpies, a couple of hundred metres away from the bow shed. Our, we lived out in the open in the dry season. Literally everyone just camped out under the stars in their little various camps around the central part of the station, which was the bow shed. And our wet seasons, we used to sleep in an upturned water tank. Mum and all the kids, mum and all the kids and Bill tapping swags under a water tank. So naturally, you know, the water would all come rushing in anyway and the ground would get soaking and the, the snakes and the lizards and the goannas and everything would come in with us for shelter. So it was um, pretty funny times. <laughs> How long had he been at Kalani before he met your mum? Not long. I think maybe only a year or so. Yeah, and my, my mother's younger brothers, when they were working for him, were really young, like 16, 17. Life was very tough. Um, so when mum met Bill Tapp in Catherine and then he invited her out to Kalani, she said to him, this is my favourite story, she used to always tell, she said to him, oh, well, what do I need? Because she's got three children under five, so she's thinking milk and nappies and, you know, all those things. In those days it was sunshine milk and she was breastfeeding my sister, Shing, who was the baby. And he said, oh, no, you don't need anything. I've got everything you need. So she piles into a truck with sort of two suitcases and a, and a bag with some milk and, what did she say, some sayo biscuits and baked beans. and <laughs> and um. Off they went to Kalani, all dirt roads. So it was that 270 kilometres today is like, you know, two and a half, three hour drive. But back then it was literally all day over dirt roads, dry creek beds, um, you know, getting flat tyres and breaking down all the time. And she said they sort of came out. So they went in the turn off of Kalani and drove up and there was a tank and a big bow shed and that. And he got out and she got out. And then she said, oh, how far have we got to go? And he said, oh, this is it, waving his arms in this great big sweeping motion like, welcome to my palace. <laughs> Mum said all the things have gone with the wind had been flashing through her mind when she was driving out there that she was going to some beautiful great big white house in the middle of nowhere. And uh, that was it. She arrived, three little kids under five and um Sleeping out in the open in swags, no toilets, no running water, no refrigeration, just living on an open fire, boiling water out of the old tank for, you know, for uh, drinking water, bogeying under the overflow of the tank was your bath, you know, cut off half 44-gallon drum was our bath. So, if he was a bit older than your mum, so about 10 years. Yeah. Mm. So he might have been her rat from Gone with the Wind, but that place, Kalani, was no Tara. There was no Tara there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the people, when we first went there, there was uh, my two young uncles and two other guys from Darwin and then a group of Aboriginal people, a family with a mother and her two or three sons who were in the stock camp and her daughter-in-law. So there were two, three, four Aboriginal women um, who spoke very little English at all, very traditional people, 
um, was fantastic. Growing up with them is another story. It was fantastic. And then the, the men were the stockmen. So there were about six or seven stockmen between my uncles and the, the Aboriginal men. And they did everything. They broke in horses and shod the horses and mustered the cattle and did all the branding and chopped the wood and just kept everything going. And slowly but surely the, the station expanded. <laughs> What was Bill like as a father or, or a stepfather? I mean, when you're that young, it's pretty much one and the same. Oh, yeah. I always say, I don't know if I should say this on a podcast, but um, I always say a sperm doesn't make a father. <laughs> it's the person who um, makes a parent. And he, he was um, aloof because that was his sort of personality and that shyness. He also had an extreme stutter, and I think that's probably why, obviously, he didn't speak as much. He wasn't so forthcoming with stories. But he was a, he was a very kind, gentle man, and he really loved the animals. And in the later years, he had this real um, obsessive, compulsive sort of disorder of not hurting animals, for example, one of the stockmen told me this story in the very early days when we were little that they were bringing some cattle into a trap yard and water and there was this great big ant's nest trail going across the front of the gate and he made them wait so he could try and shoo the ants away. So he he was quite over the top really with a lot of that stuff and we thought it was funny as as we got older. Um, one night we were coming into Catherine. It was night time. We were all, all the kids always camped on the back of the ute when you were traveling to town. And he hit a bird in the headlight. And so he would stop. We'd have to go back and find the bird. And we'd be there for half an hour. And he'd make us all lean over the side of the Toyota and go, now keep your eyes out, you kids, see if that bird's there. He wanted to make sure it was dead properly. He didn't want it to suffer. And that, that was regular. That was every time we went somewhere, those sort of things would happen. The ant story, not so much, but the bird story, that's me to a T. I feel like maybe Bill and I would have got along pretty well then because I, whenever I hit, I have a, um, a big piece of metal in the back of my car, a big piece of pipe, and I call it the heaven, heaven stick or oh. the heaven wallaby stick. So oh. if I hit, knock a wallaby or, yeah, there's mm. times I've hit a bird and gone back and it's just been stunned on the road. And like, I was like, I don't want you to get eaten by ants or, or, you know, die in the heat. So I feel like, I don't know. I really like, I I guess, yeah, the ant, ant story, maybe a bit taking a bit far, (laughs) but that I, I love that about Bill. That's yeah. Yeah. And that, that was all the time. And, and I I wish there was more of that out there, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, And I think consequently, we all grew up with those things. I hate killing anything. I won't even kill a cane toad. You know, I think all creatures, great and small, they're here. It's, not not the cane toad's fault that some stupid human brought it from <laughs> South America yeah. to Australia. Just so like I don't that. kill anything. And and so we grew up with that, of being really compassionate towards animals. And I think I'm sure that the reason why our quarter horse stud and Santa Gertrudis cattle stud did so well is because they were broken in with kindness. In Horses were broken in fairly rough in the early days. You know, they're just roped around the neck and tied up to the side of the fence or whatever and then bagged down. They used to call it bagged down using old sugar bags um, 
flipping them under the horse's stomach and, and making them buck and that to quieten them down so they got used to it, whereas Bill had much gentler methods of how to do it, bringing wild horses in and keeping them in, in little uh, yards or little paddocks close to the station so that they could understand humans or get used to humans a lot sooner. Never allowed to have dogs or cattle dogs because he didn't like dogs around horses and they weren't so fashionable back then. But certainly that compassionate side of him in in every way was evident, not even through words, more through actions, and I'm, I'm glad that we had that upbringing. You mentioned a horse and cattle stud and also earlier on that you know, his goal was to be the next cattle king. When, I guess, what for Bill, what, what did that mean? What did it mean to be the cattle king? Was it about owning X amount of land or X amount of cattle, making X amount of money? He just had this vision of, of this amazing cattle station with, you know, thousands of cattle and beautiful horses everywhere. And, and of course, my family grew from that three to ten. Mum had a further seven children with Bill Tapp. So there was quite a big dynasty there to be <laughs> having to cater for in future life. Um, so, and, but he had a, oh, I don't know, he had a really smart brain. I, I can't think how a person in the 60s could be sitting out on 1,200 square miles of just what, savannah, open red soil, black soil plains and visualise it. This I'm going to build this house, which he did, this massive big brick house and massive cattle yards and then, then a school for the kids and then the men's quarters and then the men's kitchen and little houses for the married people. And, I mean, even the Chook House was grand and Kalani. <laughs> and they were, all, they were all treated like, you know, your own kids as well. And the big stud yards had a what they called the AI room, artificial insemination, not artificial intelligence as they talk about today, <laughs> um, with fridges that and freezers to store semen and embryos. You know, his, his um, cattle breeding, cattle management was far superior to anyone else in the territory at that time. He he was bringing in new innovation and new, um, especially in the breeding. Because the the natural or the wild cattle at the time were British breed shorthorn crosses, and they just didn't cope with the country though and ticks and the hot weather. So bringing in the Santa Gertrudis cattle, which is a, a Boss Indicus Brahmin cross, brought in the length, the the height, higher off, longer legs, cattle off the ground, stronger, more tick resistant, and all those sorts of things. And then the quarter horses were replacing um, the more, the finer breeds of the racehorse type. A lot of them were thoroughbreds. People were, had been bringing thoroughbred stallions up to the territory and breeding from them. So he bought the Australian record price for a quarter horse in 1969, quarter commando. He paid $12,000 at the King Ranch sale in Barrel in New South Wales. And at that same sale, he paid the Australian record for an 18-month-old San Gertrudis bull called King Ranch, Oregon, and they became the foundation bloodlines for Kalani's cattle and horses. When did the 
I guess, the name of Cattle King get affixed to Bill? Was that during his lifetime or was that sort of post? Yeah, I think in the latter years and post and when Bill Tapp died, there was a big story in the Bulletin, you know, that magazine, that sort of political magazine that was put out in Australia. It doesn't exist anymore. The headline was The Cattle King is Dead, which I thought was pretty amazing. (laughs) It is very dramatic. Oh, my God. Very dramatic. So that legend's sort of grown from that as well. I need to tell you why Bill Tapp is called Bill Tapp, which is his his first name and his surname. When Mum met Bill Tapp, he didn't really like us calling him Dad. He felt really uncomfortable with that. And also on the station, we had about three other Bills. So there was Mum's brother, Bill Forskett, and her great-uncle, who was the cook at the time. He was another Bill Forskett. And then there was a guy called Bill Henry. So there were so many Bills um, that he just became Bill Tap, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and we sort of in our family still have that because I have my son, Ben, and I have a brother, Ben. So we always say in every day when we're just talking amongst the family, oh, Ben Tap did this or Ben Coots said that. <laughs> <laughs> like B1 and yeah. B2, B3 and B4. Yes, yeah. <laughs> What was it about him that made him the cattle king by the time he passed? So for, for the newspapers to, first of all, recognise his passing as something of prominence to be published and, and noted, mm. because, I, you know, not everybody when they pass, even if there's like not everybody who owns a pastoral lease or, or something up here when they pass, it doesn't make the mm. news. And to also, you know, not, not everybody is given a title like the cattle king. You know, there would have been plenty of other people around there who were owning stations and, you know, kind of in his peer group. But what got him that title? I hadn't really thought about that, Steph, but I think he was a very visionary person. He was the first president of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's – it's now the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association – was the North Australian – Cattlemen's Association, NACA, I think it was. He was a founding member of the, along with my mother, the Country Liberal Party in the Northern Territory. So these, this, the Territory was undergoing these major changes uh, during that time. And his work in the um, NACA was very much about quality of roads, access to meat works, uh, education in the bush health services in the bush. So the the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, sorry guys, I keep calling it the wrong name, and the Country Liberal Party was very much about the new territory at that time and as the Country Liberal Party was again about bringing control back to the Northern Territory because we were controlled from South Australia and Canberra. We didn't have any ministers or anything like that. There was only one minister in the federal government in Canberra was called the Minister for North Australia. So that's the only representation we had. So a lot of it grew out of need, uh, the need for a voice and to be talking about Territorians, which we still do today. You know, we're still a small place and I guess we're still quite remote in many ways, aren't we? Yeah, Yeah. that's a huge legacy though. Like I was thinking, you know, he's somebody – He's got the legacy of, of kind of making his own way and buying a station, the, the cattle genetics, the horse genetics, 
the dynasty of children who have all gone on and mm. most, uh, there's all the ones I know about have been a part of this industry or, you know, contributed to our community, but also to be a part of, you know, the initial NTCA or NACA mm. and the CLP, that's huge. Like that's something that, you know, he's impacted people that has got like that are not within our industry, like just regular Territorians, you know, like. Yeah, they were just regular Territorians wanting to have a voice. And whilst all this is happening, he's building this amazing place that the apparently biggest state-of-the-art cattle yards in Australia at the time. In amongst that, he had then bought Maryfield Station and Roper Valley Station and Western Creek Station. And as this was all happening then into the 80s, his drinking problem started as well. And when mum first met Bill Tapp, he never drank. He had never drunk in his life. And she says that a lot of that obsessive compulsive thing was a big thing with him, worrying about animals being hurt, offending people and all that, that his sort of inner demons. And as she said, everyone drank and everyone drank to excess when there was alcohol around. And so she said he he succumbed to it fairly quickly, she says, as she looks back on it now. And so through the 80s he was b- building this empire that he had in his mind that he wanted his seven sons all to have their own cattle stations. But in the meantime he was drinking heavily and he was over-borrowing for those properties. And in 1991, the uh, elders, pastoral at the time, elders GM, Goldsboro Mort, were his main financiers and they walked in and put it into receivership and the whole shebang into receivership. So then we spent over two years in court fighting that receivership and he died just towards the end of that court case. By then, he was um, a really terrible alcoholic and a sad, sad man. I, I still feel emotional when I think about because we didn't know anything about alcohol then, and you you sort of just go, oh, they're drunk, and, you know, get over it and stop it, and now you realise, of course, it's just not quite that easy. It's an illness. Um, it's an addiction. Mm, an illness. And mum had left him too, and he... He um, loved her dramatically all his life and that that really destroyed him as well, but she had no other option than to leave in the end. How old was he, do you think, when he started his drinking? What do we say? He wasn't drinking at 35, maybe 40. Yeah, but not much then. It was really, I went to boarding school in 1970 by the time I came back from boarding school, I started to realise that he was drinking in the mid-70s. So it didn't take long to take hold of him. How did it change him as a as a father and as an employer? Because you also came home and worked on the station after mm. school. Oh. Alcohol just changes everything, you know, and in the early days the binge drinking was months and months apart, but as it got closer and closer, it it affected everything because he had the terrible guilt feelings of after um, a big drinking binge and then so he'd overcompensate and be nice or 
buy expensive things and then, you know, then another drinking binge. And so the cycle just went around and around all the time. I can't think, I can't say really how it sort of really changed it because thankfully for me, he always loved me and he always respected me. And he was still that kind, gentle person. But by then, by the time things had started to go really bad, I was married myself and had left home. So I wasn't seeing as much of the fallout. And then, of course, when the receivers came in, well, that was it. It was heartbreaking. Did anybody know that was going to happen or was that kind of a surprise for everyone else bar him who obviously yeah. had access to the books? Yeah. And the, the other thing was because he was a sole owner and it wasn't a company or anything like that, my brothers couldn't do anything. So quite a few years earlier they had tried to get control of the station and um, make some decisions there, but they couldn't because he was a sole owner. So they just couldn't do anything. And I think it probably suited elders that they couldn't do anything because they could just keep spending and, you know, buying new helicopters and road trains and cattle and expensive it, trips to Sydney. And So they just let him dig the hole. They just let him dig the hole. It's not the first time banks have done things like that or, or also done things very, yeah. Yeah, because, I, I mean, they produced paperwork in the, in the court uh, during those, uh, that legal battle where four of my brothers went to Adelaide head office and with a great big plan and they said, you know, at this state we can trade ourselves out of debt over 10 years and they'd done all this stuff. And they just sort of said, yeah, mate, yeah, mate, she'll be right, mate, and just didn't do anything. The fallout from the receivership was they took Kalani and Maryfield and Western Creek and they gave the property to – it was settled out of court and they – the our family received Roper Valley and a payout, which was all secrecy documents, all signed and all that sort of stuff. So five of my six brothers ended up at Roper Valley and they subdivided Roper Valley. as a massive property and they subdivided it into, oh, what is it, Big River, Flying Fox, Nummel Nummel, which was called Chattahoochee, and Mount McMinn. Yeah, four brothers went there and Billy, no, Billy got Western Creek, that's right. So they subdivided that. They'd only been there about two or three years and they were all sort of at Roper Valley and then the Aboriginals put a land claim on it and they had to give up 100 square kilometres and all the houses and the whole living area and start again. So they subdivided and started their own properties from scratch, like when Bill Tuck went to Killarney, nothing. Built their houses, put in their tanks, cattle, horses, yards, <laughs> fences. Um, so, that, yeah, so that all happened then. And then in the middle of all that, there was also another court case of Kalani versus Northern Territory Government for payment for compensation for BTEC, uh, the brucellosis and tuberculosis eradication campaign where they came in and shot out half the cattle in the Northern Territory because of uh, brucellosis and tuberculosis. And 
Clarny took them to court for compensation because the Northern Territory government ran out of money and they just stopped paying pastoralists. That was it. No one got paid. So we won that case and were the only ones in the Territory to ever win any compensation because then the government just shut down on everything. So it was disgraceful, it was disgusting. They wiped out the cattle industry and just didn't, you know. The amount of challenges your family's been through, like in, in quick succession, like in a short period of time, to to have to overcome. Yeah, well, you know, all it does is make you stronger, doesn't it? Are you quite a close-knit family? I mean, there are 10 of you. That's a lot of siblings. There's a lot of birthdays to remember. It's got to be a lot of nieces and nephews <laughs> to, re- to remember. Yeah, yeah. We're a huge family, but we're spread out now. A couple of brothers down in Tamworth and Queensland. Ben has camp drafting horses and all that in Tamworth. And Joe, who owned King River Station, he's down at Bendemere outside of Tamworth with a few hundred cows and very happy. And uh, William lives around Toowoomba area now and he still does cutting and training horses and breeding, cutting horses and stuff like that and he's happy and, yeah. I think we can't, can't not mention also in the, uh, in the third generation there's a few celebrities in the family. We've got Linton from MasterChef, Holly yeah. who was on The Voice and then Emily who is a Paralympian. Paralympian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so – yeah, no, there's a lot of talent out there, that's for sure. And, and, um, we all get on pretty well, but everyone's living different lives now. And I think there's mum's got 27 grandchildren, something like that. And I don't know how many great grandchildren. So that makes for a big family that, you know, <laughs> that makes for an expensive Christmas shopping list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no such thing as Christmas well, anymore. I- I was going to say, thinking back to your first episode where you you shared the story of how when you were growing up, your mum would send the workers into town to get the Christmas presents and everyone would either get a, uh, like a, some perfume and maybe a new pair of undies and a pair of jeans for Christmas. That's yeah. probably what you'd have to limit it to for the grandkids these days. Yeah, yeah. Imagine trying to get them all an iPad or something. Oh, Jeez. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> You've written a book about Bill Taff and mm-hmm. I suppose because you're an author – you are sort of like the spokesperson in the family, particularly when it comes to telling Bill Tapp's story. You've had a lot of time to, I guess, you've learned a lot of things about him, I guess, by being mm. this, this child. And then I'm sure you found out other things as you were pulling together the book and, and all sorts of information. Looking back, where do you think it all went wrong and that it, it turned out the way it did? Well, the mid-80s with the drinking is where it all went wrong and just overcapitalizing and overspending. You know, it's it's not like they went on big overseas holidays or anything like that. It's just that sort of grand living within that lifestyle. He bought Mercedes Benzes when, you know, why would you need Mercedes Benz when you got 40 kilometres of dirt road into the station? But um, he liked the good things in life and he grew up with the good things in life. It was, it's really sad to see someone decline with alcoholism because he was only 63 when he died, you know, and my mum's still here. She's 88, so he would be, whatever, 95 or something now, which was not unreasonable in this day and age to live to that age. 
amazing to have him here and to, to see that his kids turned out really well and he he was an in, the influence on many of who we are and what we are and what we do in our life and be sort of nice if you could say, I can say you did a good job, the best you could in your your own way. And I think without a doubt everyone in uh, all us 10 children recognise that now go through those terrible times and through that massive great big court case in the Supreme Court. But out of it came strengths, uh, understanding, I guess, of ourselves, being thankful that we had that opportunity in life. Even if it didn't turn out the way he thought it was, we still had amazing opportunities because of Bill Tapp and my mother. He sounds like an amazing man and your mum as well. And that's I'm very excited that we're going to get to have a chat about her Next episode, not right now, don't worry, I won't keep you here any longer. <laughs> and I guess at the end of the day, people could only do the best they knew how at that time. And like you said, alcoholism, it just even even if some of the dangers were known back then, the support services certainly weren't necessarily available and particularly in remote areas, then you've got the compounding factor of being, you know, a middle-aged white man in the bush who's, yeah. you know, who's going to – that is kind of just the – the stereotype is, you know, have a beer, have a smoke, and that's still something we're battling with today. So to break free of that or to even seek help back then would be pretty unheard of. Yeah, and, um, I mean, he was, you know, the man. He was totally in control of everyone's lives and he set the standard of living and everything else and you've got all these people depending on you all the time, you know, People worked out there for 20 years and when Kalani, when it all folded, they had nowhere to go because that was home to them. Here in Catherine at the moment, there's, you'll see, you'll, you'll know who I'm talking about, the couple of old Aboriginal men around town that always have their cowboy hats on. Yeah. They were young stockmen at Kalani. And when, because they'd been there since kids and then just grown up and gone into stock, stock camp and become stockmen, that's the only life they knew, and they didn't go back to their original communities because they were living at, living on an Aboriginal community and living on a cattle station's worlds apart on how people live. And so they ended up in town. They still live here on the on, in the long grass, as we say, on the riverbank, but you see them and you know who I'm talking about. They're always clean and tidy, always got their hats, boots, Shirts tucked in, belts. Yeah, I actually yeah. I walked past someone the other day, and I was gonna. I next time I go for a walk, and it was down past the river, out, yeah. um, in Catherine North, and I was next time I see, I'm gonna stop and ask and see if mm. if that if mm. they are from Kalani, yeah. if, um, and they're getting very old and frail now. Yeah, and yeah. try and catch some stories mm. there as well. While it it's absolutely tragic how it all came to an end, and I guess I suppose I think for me. Like hearing the story, it, it seems even more tragic that he was there while through that, like that that court case mm. happened in his lifetime. Yeah, which you know would have been—I can't imagine how hard for him, especially everything he's done, how hard he's worked, and then to have that happen. But at the end of the day, the the legacy of his children, and then like you know, and and other things like you just said, the people that worked—if someone works you for twenty years—that says something. Mm. That says more about who he was. And I think everything he achieved in his lifetime and most importantly, the, the 10 children and the people you guys have grown up to be 
says more about him and his life and what that was about than how it ended. Like, I think while it didn't end well, I mean, this is just from an outsider's perspective, that's not reflective of who he was and his story, I suppose. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, there's a moral to this story in parenting these days of, of setting a standard and how important those first years in your life are. And, um, you you know, you have to have resilience. And, I mean, you lose my brothers. We could have still all been, they could have been at Kalani still and had a whole different life. But they lose you lose everything. And you just start again. They just go out and you know build cattle stations themselves. So that that um, living that really positive life, having that resilience and strength to just go well. That's happened. Too bad. Too sad. We've got to get on because if we don't, we're lost. Yeah. You know, we've got our own children, our own families, and I think in many ways, um, I'm thankful in a weird way, that it did happen when it happened because everyone was still young enough to start anew. If that had happened now, where would your skills be if you've just lived that same life for 40 or 50 years on the same property? And is that not the case around the country more often than I'd like to hear now when it comes to succession planning? So, yeah, lucky that, I suppose you say, yeah, silver lying that it happened at that point in time rather than yeah. Then further down the track. To wrap up our chat about Bill, I was wondering if you could tell me a few more stories about him because the fact that you've written a book about him, you speak about him, he's had such a huge impact on your life. I mean, if he if he wasn't a great dad or something, you know, you wouldn't have written a book. You wouldn't mm-hmm. have be telling stories. You wouldn't be speaking about him now and I can hear the emotion in your voice. So he's, you know, I'd love to hear just a few more of those gorgeous stories you have about him oh one that really comes to mind is um out on the on the front veranda at night when i especially when i was at boarding school uh we all loved singing and playing guitars and my cousin robin uh, was a really good guitarist she lived in darwin but used to come out every single school holidays to Clarny. and sitting out on the front veranda at night and him making us sing songs and he'd, he'd go, oh, my favourite song is Crystal Chandeliers by Charlie Pride. And could you sing that? And he loved Roy Orbison. We used to do Roy Orbison, Patsy Cline. But that was huge fun. And he'd make us sing them over and over again. He'd go, oh, come on, Tone, just sing that one for me. Just sing that one for me. And it was so much fun, so much fun. And mum's quite a good singer, Bill Tap, not at all. Don't hold back, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go on full musters when we were really young, but we were allowed to saddle our horses up and help bring the cattle into the yards in the evening, and that was great. He used to always be the lead man on his horse, and we'd follow along, like, you know, adoring this sort of amazing stockman person that could do everything. <laughs> Yeah, it was just just a lot of fun in his own way. As I said, he wasn't a social person at all. Um, I danced with him at the Brahmin dinner and the Cattleman's Ball and Catherine. I used to be waltzed around the floor when I was old enough when I returned back from boarding school and could go to those things. And um, Not to mention he found you a husband. And he found me a husband. He gave me away at my wedding. 
and stood up and made a really lovely speech of how proud of me he was and all those things, you know. And, yeah, the parent-children relationships were certainly in our family were very different. No one was kissy-cuddly or said anything very nice very often. So those sort of actions were everything. Looking back at Bill's story, what would you say are the lessons that you've taken away from it? The lesson that we certainly all took away is work. You must work and you must work hard, (laughs) Uh, respect, integrity and um, compassion. Bill Tapp said everyone on the station was equal because everyone had a job that was reliant on. So whether you were the stockman or the mechanic or the cook or the person washing the clothes, you were all interdependent on each other and it was important to respect that. That was definitely something that we live by. Kindness to animals and kindness to other people was definitely a big thing. Yeah, I think, and just brought away, I guess, what the the life lesson was is just harden up, toughen up, work hard and get on with it.